Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Good morning. Thank you. It is great to see your smiling faces and great to hear your voices, not muffled as you're singing out. It's just a joy to be gathered with you in worship. If, if we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg. I'm one of the pastors. And this morning we are continuing and actually nearing the end of the sermon series that we've been in for a number of weeks now, the series that we've been calling Renewed, Life After Disaster. And we've got this week and then we've got the last message in in the series is next week, and, it, and in a lot of ways, it feels like probably appropriate timing, because we've been in this series, because weeks ago when we started it, we were only just starting to really think about life on the other side of the pandemic, that we were really starting to think about what might that look like as restrictions are lifted, what might it be like as we emerge from these 15 months of trial and disaster, and now for some of us in this last week, as in New Jersey, the restriction around mask wearing and social distancing has been lifted, it feels like, yes, we are there, it's over, I am done with this pandemic. We are already on the other side, and certainly I can appreciate and understand that feeling, but when we think about it, we also know that we're not there yet. Certainly not there as we think about the rest of the world and the devastation that continues well beyond our country. We're not there for those who cannot or should not be vaccinated at this time. Uh, There's still a real risk for many and for those who are protecting those that they love and care for who are still vulnerable. We're not there yet. We're also not there yet because All of us together are going to, over these next weeks and months, we're going to stumble forward into trying to figure out what does life now look like? What is it going to be like? Because it's not going to be like just going back. It's going to be something new. And really, that's the reality of renewal, and it's also the possibility within every disaster that after every disaster in our lives, there is the potential for God to bring renewal, which by its definition will mean something new. And so in this series, we've wanted to lean in. We've wanted to seek God to lead us into this new thing that he's doing, and not just new in terms of the the activities that we're allowed to do and, and how life is opening up that way, but the new thing that he wants to do in our soul the new thing that he wants to do in our life together as this part of his church, and the new thing that he wants to do beyond us in renewing our community and the world. Really, we want to experience renewal that only God can bring about. And today we're going to be looking at freedom and how that plays into our freedom and renewal. It's appropriate probably on this Memorial Day weekend to begin considering freedom that we have this gift of living in this nation where we have the freedom to worship God. We have the freedom to pursue him openly, to pursue the life that he intended for us. This freedom that is this incredible gift that was bought at the price of so many lives for which we are incredibly grateful. And so we're going to be talking about freedom and how we can use our freedom to pursue renewal. And I don't know about you, uh, how, 
how you have celebrated Memorial Days over the years, but growing up, I remember we used to have picnics on Memorial Day weekends, and a lot of the time we'd have them at my house, and we'd invite folks over, and, and I'm going to use the term lawn loosely here, because growing up just into the mountains of Colorado, our lawn consisted of tufts of grass separated by troughs of dirt, followed by more tufts of grass and additional dirt. And so we would mow it and call it lawn because if it was unkempt, it would grow to like three or four feet high. And so we kept it low. And on these picnics, we would frequently play one of my favorite games that we called mountain croquet. And so it's a lot like croquet where you have the little wickets, those little arches, and you try to hit the ball through in order and get to the end first. But it was mountain croquet because we didn't really have a lawn, and so you often had to figure out, okay, which trough is going to kind of send the ball generally in the direction that I am trying to go, and hopefully you would have success. But the best part of the game, in my opinion, was when your ball would hit somebody else's ball. And if you have not played croquet, then you don't know the absolute joy of that moment. Because what happens next is you have a choice. A choice about how you can try to ruin someone else's game. And it is a fantastic choice because you can decide to take their ball, set it right next to yours, and you can stand on your ball. Then you can take that big wooden mallet and you can whack your ball. Your ball stays there and theirs goes shooting off into the distance somewhere hopefully into that long grass that we haven't mowed that is almost impossible to get it back from. Or you can decide in your freedom to choose. You can hit their ball without your foot on it. You can hit your ball into theirs. Theirs goes that way. Yours goes this way. And it's this wonderful thing. So you have these choices about how to try to ruin their life. That might be a little overstatement, but at least their game. And this is the joyful choice. There's also the freedom to not hit their ball and just to go again. You can choose to kind of rein it in and choose to try to advance your ball and try to win the game. All of these are choices that you have this freedom within croquet, and it's kind of a silly example, but we're going to look at the freedom that is available to us, the choices that we get to make, and how that we can use our freedom to pursue the renewal that God wants to bring into our lives. And so we're going to do that looking at Ezra, chapter, a little piece from chapter 7, a little piece from chapter 8, because really this whole series has also been a journey through the book of Ezra. And the book of Ezra is, is capturing the history of God's people in a time where they were emerging from disaster, from 70 plus years of exile, of captivity, of hardship. They were emerging from that disaster, getting back to Jerusalem and seeing life renewed by God in powerful ways. And so we're going to jump into Ezra chapter 7 and 8 and look at freedom in renewal. And so if you want, you can follow along on the screen as we listen for God's word speaking into our lives. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. There, by the Ahava Canal, I, Ezra, proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Let's pray as we move into God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the freedom that we have to gather here openly to worship you. 
Thank you for your word that speaks into our lives. Thank you for your spirit. May your spirit lead our thoughts. Take anything that I say that's not of you. Cause it to be forgotten, to fall away, so that all that remains is your word and your spirit leading us into life renewed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we have in chapter 7, finally, Ezra, the guy who the book is named after, Ezra shows up for the first time and he arrives in Jerusalem. He's a little late to the party. This is actually 60 years after what just happened in chapter 6 and about 20 years after the first exiles and captives had returned to Jerusalem in the first place. So he's a little late coming, but he's got a really important mission to fulfill, and that mission is all about renewal. And this might have been a little confusing what we read because the part from chapter 7 is kind of a summary of the fact that Ezra arrives in Jerusalem and chapter 8 and other parts of chapter 7 give more details about how it actually happened. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 8, those details first, and then come back to chapter 7 because in chapter 8 we were told that, that Ezra's still in Babylon. He's by the Ahava Canal. And he's there longing to go back to Jerusalem, waiting, and yet he also has been given the go-ahead. Like the king has said, hey, you can go back. You can take anybody with you who wants to go. You can go and bring about reform in society and worship of God. So go ahead. But rather than rushing out in the freedom and the excitement to get back to Jerusalem and get back to life as he hoped for it, we see something strange happen. Ezra instead calls all the people together and he says, hey, let's fast and pray. So in other words, they dedicate themselves collectively to this time, this season, where they intentionally choose not to eat. And instead, they seek God praying and asking for his help. And this wasn't enough just for Ezra to, to seek God himself and to seek renewal for himself. He wanted renewal for all of the people, and so he invites all of them into this practice of fasting and prayer. But why? Why fast? Did you, did you notice? I mean, we get one explicit answer where in verse 21, Ezra says, it was so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children and our possessions. You know, and I think many of us have this kind of impulse that when we're traveling someplace far away or others that we care about are traveling, we'll frequently pray, God, you know, keep them safe, help them get there. And, and those are really good and appropriate prayers because we don't want to take any moment for granted. We understand that God is the one who gives us life. He's the one that sustains us and preserves life every moment. And so we pray to God that he will get us there safely. But it was more than just that because we're often thinking about, you know, mechanically something going wrong or something like that. But for these people in Ezra's day, there was a very real danger of being attacked. Because on these long journeys, there were often you know, these groups of bandits that would hide in the canyons or the valleys or around a bend or whatever over a hill, and they would just wait for these traveling groups to come through, and they would pounce on them. And they'd attack, and they'd pillage, and they'd kill, and they'd take whatever they wanted. And so Ezra knew that it wasn't just a dangerous, hard road. It was a danger always because they didn't know who they were going to face along the way. And so the, they were pleading for God to get them there safely. But do you see the other reason that Ezra gave for fasting and for praying it was actually because he was ashamed. Did you see that? He was ashamed. 
Ashamed to ask the king for help. Ashamed to ask the king to give soldiers or horsemen or provide protection. And this is actually kind of a weird thing because Ezra totally had the ear of the king. He was a part of the king's court. He could have asked and actually did ask the king for all sorts of things. And so why not ask for help, for protection? And he answers the question because he says, he says this. He didn't want to ask because he had been telling the king all about God. And in these conversations, he'd been telling him, you know, here's the thing. Anybody who puts their trust in God, if you are all in, if you're devoted to God, if you look to him, he's going to protect you. He's going to take care of you. But anybody who, who, who forsakes God, who really is trusting in other things, other gods, other people, anybody who turns their back on God and isn't just trusting him alone, then God has anger. He, he has judgment. God is actually a jealous God. He doesn't want our devotion, our love, our loyalty to be split between others and him. He wants it just for him alone. But when we give it to him, man, he will, he will take care of us every step of the way. And so it begs the question, is it wrong to ask for help? Is it wrong to ask other people for help? Or are we just supposed to ask God and God alone? In, in every situation, in the disasters we face in our lives, are we supposed to just pray and wait and expect God to just pick us up and take us where we want to go? Or to suddenly have, you know, horses or angels come from the sky to protect us? I think if, if we take what we've read today out of context of the rest of Ezra and the rest of the Scripture, we could easily turn that into a principle. We talked about this in our staff meeting this week, because it seems like that could be what Ezra is saying that you need to just trust God to take care of all your needs and don't ask for anybody else or else you'll be somehow turning your back on God. But that's not what this passage is teaching us in the context of the rest of the book of Ezra. As a matter of fact, earlier in chapter 7, right before what we read in verse 6, we're told that Ezra did ask for help just for other things. We're told that he asked the king, and the king, in verse 6, had granted Ezra everything he asked for because the hand of God, his, the Lord his God was on him. In other words, these aren't necessarily mutually exclusive things, asking God for help and asking others for help. He was able to ask the king for things, and the king gave it to him because God was using the king to be good to him and gracious to him. And so why not just ask the king for soldiers and protection and then thank God for using the king to provide those things? And I can't fully answer that except for to kind of lean into the reality of the freedom that Ezra has been given, and really that all of us have been given. This freedom for Ezra to figure out how to navigate life. Because there was something in the course of his conversations with the king, something in Ezra's own reflections on the character of God, something in his own kind of reflections on his relationship with God that caused Ezra to realize and then to tell us, tell others, that if he asked the king for protection, that it actually would be betraying his lack of faith and trust in God. For him, these had become mutually exclusive. He realized that if he had asked the king for protection, it's because he was afraid and because he wasn't really trusting that God was going to provide him the protection that he needed. And for Ezra, this was an unacceptable way to relate to God. Because he knew that life renewed, renewal comes from this place of, of genuine and complete trust that God is going to show up, that he's going to do what is needed, that he's going to actually provide the way forward. And so Ezra chooses to restrict the freedom that God has given him. 
because he clearly could have asked the king for help. It was on the table. He asked for all sorts of other things. There was plenty of freedom to do so, but because of his relationship with God, he chooses to restrict his freedom to not ask the king so that he can firmly plant his feet and his life in trusting God alone. And so he calls for the people to fast and to pray with him. He restricts not just his own freedom, but he invites others to restrict their freedom. But, but get this, all of it was voluntary. At no point did God tell Ezra or the people to fast. It wasn't like some command, you must do this. No, they chose to not rush out in their excitement and go to Jerusalem. They chose not to just jump on the road and head out for the journey. They chose not to ask the king for help. They chose not to eat and to seek God because of their relationship with him. They were choosing to restrict their freedom to see what God was going to do in them and through them. And so they fasted, they prayed, and were told that God answered their prayer. I think this is really profound as we think about how we use our own freedom. The freedom that we've been given, particularly emerging from this pandemic, this freedom as restrictions are lifted, the freedom to go where we want to go, to do what we want to do, to see the people we want to see, to go on the vacations, to have the experiences, to go play the sports, do the activities, all of the, all, all the everything. How do we use our freedom? Part of it is go for it. You are free to embrace the opportunities that God has provided for you. But I think this passage is also inviting us to consider how we use our freedom. Specifically, maybe even how we might voluntarily restrict our freedom, restrict the activities that we will do, restrict our freedom so that we can pursue God intentionally and experience a depth of intimacy, of trust, in, in this incredible renewed relationship with God. And in chapter 7, I think we actually get some insight about how Ezra himself pursued this renewal, restricted his freedom to pursue renewal, not just on a one-time basis through the fasting and praying, but on an ongoing basis so that renewal was a part of, the ha these habits were a part of the renewal of his ongoing life. We're told in, in chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, gracious hand of God was on Ezra, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That he had his life devoted to these things. And when, when you hear that word devoted, I mean, if we actually peel that back, what does that really mean? It means that it was his desire and his longing to study the law of the Lord, to put it into action, to teach it to others, that it came from his heart. There wasn't just like this mechanical religious activity that he needed to do, had to do, should do, because we're told he's a priest and a scribe, so it's easy to think, oh, he's a priest. He's a professional. Of course he would do those things. Of course the professional Christians would spend their time reading the, reading the Scripture, praying, doing those things, because they're the professionals. But this isn't telling us, oh, it's the professional that's doing it. It's telling us that it was actually the desire and longing of his heart to know God more deeply, to pursue Him intentionally. So he restricted his activities, all these other options he could have been doing. He spent this time pursuing God, studying the law, putting it into action. He restricted his freedom so that he could know God and know what God intended for him. But I love the fact that he was not satisfied just to know what God intended for his life. 
Because I think the reality is a lot of us know some things that God intends for us, but it's not just enough to know. It wasn't enough for him to be devoted to knowing it. He was devoted to knowing it and then doing it. He was living what he was learning way before he started trying to teach it to anyone else. And man, that order of operations, that order of presentation, I think is so important for us to hear and respond to. It would go a long way in the world that we're living in today if each of us functioned just that way. If we were living out of the convictions of what God was teaching us and showed us. If we focused on how our lives, or even if our lives, reflect God's intent and purposes for us rather than focusing outward on how everyone else was messing up God's intentions for their life or for society. Because the reality is, if you're a follower of Jesus, we don't have a very good reputation in society around these issues. As a matter of fact, the words that often come to mind by many who are not in the church and are not followers of Jesus is hypocrite and judgmental. In other words, We have a tendency to not do what we say, not to live out the things that we know to be true of God's intent and plan for our lives. And so I wonder if we spent more time and effort restricting our freedom by not looking out at everybody else and what they are and aren't doing, criticizing their lives and looking inward to know and receive God's intent and purposes. And then with everything that we have to the best of our ability to seek to live it out day in and day out, to put it into action, to see our lives changed, transformed, and renewed, then maybe, maybe like Ezra, we would have a credibility to go along with our conviction. Because it's easy to have a conviction, isn't it? It's easy. We've got lots of convictions. And, and lots of other people around us have lots of, lots of convictions, and we get to hear all about their convictions a lot of the time. But the question for all of us is, do our convictions and our actions line up? Are they aligned or not? And I think if we honestly reflect on this, this may be a place where we realize that there is a breakdown in the freedom that we think that we have. Because frequently we have deep convictions, and and some of us have deep convictions that we believe come from God about His plan and His purposes for our lives. But the question is, are you actually free to do those things, to live into those convictions? Are you free to actually follow through on the convictions that you hold, or do you find, like so many of us, that when you try and you put in your effort and over and over again, you try to pursue living out the convictions on your lives, that you continue to fall, to fail, to stumble, and not live up even to the convictions that you hold so deep and so dear? The reality is we all live there at some point. And this is the reality, actually, of sin continuing to be alive within us. And maybe if we're honest about it, we don't actually have as much freedom to choose to, to how we're going to live as we think we do. And we don't have as much freedom to follow through on the convictions that we hold as we believe that we do. Because we find ourselves often wanting to follow Jesus, wanting to do and live out his purposes for our lives, and yet continually coming up short, not able to do it. This is what Paul was talking about in Galatians 5 that we read earlier. He's talking about how we have the Holy Spirit within us and we have the flesh. We have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God alive, and the flesh is alive within us, that part of ourselves that is living in rebellion from God that continues to live in such a way that we want to do what we want, when we want, how we want it. That's the flesh alive and well, and that way of life 
Man, that is being stroked and nurtured in our society. The message that is coming constantly to us and to our children and to your grandchildren is you just do the things that make you happy. Follow your heart. No one should tell you how to live. No one should put restrictions and limitations on you. Freedom is really about defining who you want to be and how you want to be it and then pursuing it with everything that you are. And Paul is saying, man, this is not life. This is not true freedom just to do whatever you want. I don't know about you, but I mean, I've observed that this is often an exhausting and anxiety-ridden way to live to try to figure out the things that are going to hold us deeply and profoundly satisfied. I mean, the things that make me happy change day in and day out, season by season. The things that I think will fulfill my longings, I can have those and then suddenly realize, man, there's something else. There's something more. There's still something missing. And in that constant pursuit of trying to make myself happy, fulfilled, me- have a meaningful, satisfying life, it can be exhausting. That's not true freedom. That's That's bondage. And this reality, uh, uh, we have the Holy Spirit within us and the flesh at the same time may be exactly why you, just like me, have resolved at various times in your life that this time it's going to be different. I'm really going to invest in my relationship with God. It's really going to be different this time. I'm going to see the renewal, the change that's going to happen. And so you put in all these things into place and you say, I'm going to start worshiping regularly and I'm going to read the Bible like every 18 minutes of every day and I'm going to pray 642 times in the next four minutes. I mean, all these things that we start to put into our lives and we say, yes, I, this is going to be different this time. And I know this, it, it is a sincere desire and longing that we want to walk with the Lord intimately. And yet, when we set out and we try, we hit those fits, those starts, and we can't get to that place of renewal because we can't seem to overcome the flesh that's alive within us. And we get frustrated because we're stuck and renewal evades us. And I think this is very much what is happening for the people of God in the book of Ezra. Because if we remember back to last week, at the end of chapter 6, they had finished building the temple. And when they did that, they started making sacrifices. They had these huge celebrations, and it was kind of like this moment. It felt like they had arrived. Yes, it's renewal. We're here. And, it, and yet here now... In chapter 7, just 60 years after the the temple was built, Ezra has been sent back to Jerusalem to bring actual renewal. Because renewal was not just about the temple. The temple was supposed to be the symbol of renewal. The temple itself was not the renewal. The temple was outward actions and behaviors and activities. Real renewal, renewal was from the inside. God wanted inward transformation of their hearts so that their desires, their passions, their motivations, their longings were in alignment with His so that their lives would be a beautiful witness to who God is. In other words, he wanted their life to be renewed from the inside out, not from this outside in. He wanted them to have true freedom, not this supposed freedom, not the freedom that we think of as unrestricted possibility, limitless options, not just freedom to do whatever makes them feel happy because that wasn't real freedom. Real freedom, I think what we're seeing in this passage and what Paul is talking about is a freedom to be able to choose restrictions. Freedom to be able to choose the restrictions that are gonna lead to a good and beautiful life that God intends for us. Restrictions that are gonna choose ways of life that are not about me, that are not about us. Ways of life that will be a blessing to others that will allow us to love God more completely and love our neighbors as ourselves. Love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. 
to put aside our self-interest, to walk by the Spirit of God in the paths that He would set before us continually, free from the guilt of constantly striving, stumbling, falling out of our own effort. And Ezra is living in that kind of freedom. And it comes, it came to him from restricting this, all of his freedom of possible activities. He chose to res- restrict his freedom so that God could lead him into real, true freedom. I, I know this is kind of strange to think about real freedom is, is through the restriction of our freedom. But that's the path that makes ourselves available for God to bring renewal. It's the path, actually, that historically has been called spiritual disciplines. Kind of an unfortunate name, because none of us really like disciplines. You know, that we kind of buck against that. But that's what they've been called over all the years, because it's about disciplining our lives, restricting our freedoms, not for the sake of restriction, as if that's what makes us good, but so that we can finally experience the renewal that God intends for us. As a matter of fact, uh, Richard Foster is a pastor and an author, and he spent a lot of his life reflecting on spiritual disciplines, on what God can do as people embrace these practices, uh, these habits of renewal. And he says, actually, the purpose In this book, Celebration of Discipline, he says the purpose of the disciplines, the reason why you would spend time like Ezra studying the law, putting it into practice, teaching others, fasting, praying, the reason you would do any of these practices, coming to worship, seeking God through the Bible, the reason, the purpose for the disciplines is liberation from self, from stifling slavery to self-interest and fear. The reason to restrict your freedoms is freedom is liberation. Liberation from that slavery to stifling self-interest and fear. That slavery that we have to trying to define for ourselves what's going to make life meaningful, joyful, purposeful, what's going to give us longing and lasting happiness. The freedom from using every moment to seek to fulfill our ambitions, our goals, our drives, our desires. The freedom from the fear and the anxiety that comes from constantly striving and coming up short, constantly striving and trying to get something else, trying to cope with the uncertainty, the pain of the world, and failing. It's the freedom, the liberation from that slavery to self-interest and fear. And through the disciplines, through these habits, make ourselves available to God. Be intentional. Take ourselves off of autopilot and make ourselves available to God. Because what does your autopilot look like if you reflect on the reality of your days and your weeks? If you're just on autopilot, if you wake up tomorrow, okay, tomorrow's Memorial Day, if you wake up on Tuesday morning, autopilot might take over for most of us. And what does that look like? Autopilot often looks like whatever's on the calendar, whatever's on the to-do list, whatever we think might be satisfying. Just, you know, get a moment where we can be happy and get out of the grind. Maybe we can just break away for a little bit. What is that autopilot? And these disciplines are saying, you know what? No, I don't want to just be on autopilot because autopilot isn't leading me to the life that I really long for, a life that's renewed from the inside out. So I want to put myself in a posture intentionally where I can receive real freedom. I want to restrict my freedom so that I can receive the liberation and the freedom that God wants to give me as a gift, to receive his grace so that he can renew us, bring healing, transformation, free you from addiction and slavery and pain and bitterness. And so I want to invite you to think about how you might restrict, especially as things are opening up, 
How might you use your freedom? How might you involuntarily, intentionally restrict your freedoms to embrace some practices, some habits of renewal so that God can move in your life in a way that perhaps you haven't seen him do before? Very specifically, I want to invite you to consider fasting with me. And before I explain more about that, I want to acknowledge that Jesus warns his followers about fasting. He says very clearly, hey, when you fast, this is between you and God. Do it in secret. Don't do it so that everybody knows about it. As a matter of fact, when you're fasting, make sure you wash your face, you look, put a smile on, you look happy, you look strong. Don't let anybody else know about it because it's not about getting some sort of affirmation or other people looking at you and saying, wow, look at how spiritual and amazing they are. It's about what God wants to do in secret as he wants to bring renewal into your life. And so I want to acknowledge that warning, even as I'm going to publicly tell you I'm going to fast for at least the next 30 days, and I want to invite you into it. Because just like Ezra invited the people to join him, I want to invite you as we join collectively, corporately, into this time, this intentionality of seeking God and seeking the renewal that he might want to bring into your life individually, our life together, and well beyond us. And remember, for Ezra, it wasn't about patting themselves on the back and feeling really great and spiritual. You remember why he fasted? It was to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves so that we could seek God. And so, I want to invite you to consider fasting with me for at least the next 30 days. And I want you to consider fasting three days out of a week. You know, don't start with every day. As a matter of fact, don't even start with 24 hours on those days if you don't have a history of fasting. Start with three days a week and fast for one meal of those days. And, and it's not just enough to not eat the meal. That's not the point. The point is actually saying, no, I don't want to, in this time, I want to intentionally seek you, God, and put myself in a posture of humility where you can bring renewal into my life. And so if you just don't eat, it misses the point. It's to not eat and to pursue God intentionally in prayer to assume a posture that allows his renewal into our lives. And I want to invite you to consider praying with me in at least these three ways. In the three ways that, that I mentioned actually a month or a month and a half ago, the three ways that are, are coined by Jonathan Edwards, a great North American pastor and theologian, the way called extraordinary prayer. Because extraordinary prayer seems to be the precursor, the predecessor to all great renewal. And so I want to invite you to pray in at least these three ways with me. The first is to pray that we would have the grace to humble ourselves and confess our sin. That God would give us the grace to see ourselves honestly and clearly, to see where we are losing the war with the flesh, where we're giving in and indulging to whatever we want and whatever passion, desire comes into our lives and we're just going with it. To see where we've been using the freedom that we've been given to build ourselves up for our own self-interest, to honestly confess that before him. To have that grace to be humbled to confess so that we can receive his grace anew and be, and be renewed. The second is to pray that the, the church, Jesus' church, would flourish. To pray that we would have a passion for the flourishing of the church. And what I mean by that is not just numbers of people, that's not it. 
The flourishing of the people of God is when the people of God are experiencing renewal, where we're seeing the movement of the Holy Spirit bring about transformation, where we're seeing the growth of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, yes, even self-control, growing within us so that our lives as individuals and our life collectively looks something completely different from the alternatives that the world is offering, and that it looks like something beautiful, that people look at it and say, man, what is it? And we're able to say, it's about Jesus and what he's doing in our lives. And to pray, as we pray for that flourishing of the church, that it would overflow into this zeal for the lost, for those who don't know Jesus. Because there's lots of people who are lost, who are, who are constantly on their own trying to figure out how to use their freedom to have a life of meaning, of joy, and satisfaction. They are lost from the reality that they're just giving into the flesh. They don't even know And they don't even know that there's an alternative. They don't know that there's a God who loves them so much that he doesn't want them to just suffer and to use their freedom in those sorts of ways, but wants to give them true freedom through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And to pray with a zeal and a passion for those who don't know Jesus who are suffering apart from him. And the third thing is to pray that we would see the glory of God, that we would see him more clearly that we would know him more deeply, that he would reveal more and more of himself and that we would be in awe and wonder at the God who has loved us this much and has called us into relationship with him, the God who has given us this freedom, that we would be moved to live lives of passionate worship for him, acknowledging his goodness, his grace, and his glory. So I want to invite you to fast and to pray with me for at least the next 30 days. And if you want to be a part of that journey, I'd love for you to email me. Email me at Robbie at PCTR.org, R-O-B-B-I-E at PCTR.org, and I'd love to, I'll just send you a little bit of practical information on fasting so that you can think about how to do this if you've never done it before. Also send you that bit of the, the reminder of what this extraordinary prayer looks like and invite you to, to join me as we intentionally seek God through these habits of renewal, through pa- fasting and praying together that we would see God move in each of us individually to bring renewal and bring renewal in our corporate life together as a church and renewal into our community, our neighborhoods, our families, and out into the world. That we would see God move. We'd see lives renewed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you certainly humbled as we reflect honestly on the way we've used the, the gift of freedom that you've given us how we've used the freedom to pursue our own self-interest, how we've used the gift of freedom to just indulge whatever we feel like doing at the moments that we feel like doing it. So God, we, we do acknowledge that, and we also acknowledge that we, we want the real freedom that you're offering us, the freedom of being renewed from the inside out, the freedom that lo- allows us to restrict the activities of our lives so that we can experience your goodness and your grace and your love. Lord God, will you give us that grace to look honestly at our lives, to be humbled before you, to confess openly, and that we can receive your grace and your forgiveness? Lord, may we also have a passion for your church. May we pray with earnestness that we would see your church flourish, the people around us being renewed as well, the fruit of your spirit growing, that we would have a zeal for those who don't know you, who are lost, who are apart from from your good news through Jesus Christ. May you lead us as we pray for those people. Lord, may we also get to see your glory. May we see you more clearly. May we be in awe at wonder of who you are. 
Lord, may you be honored in our lives, and may we see life renewed from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.